You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. You'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We come to the longest chapter in uh, John's Gospel, contains another two of the seven miraculous signs that John records in his Gospel. This is the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. John said near the end of his Gospel, the reason why he focuses on these particular seven signs, he said these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. To set the scenes, scene for the events of John chapter 6, it will help us to look at the other Gospels, and they give us a bit more background. John is very uh, economical with his words, um, and so he doesn't include some of the background events, but the other Gospels do give us quite a bit more information. The background of this is that uh, Jesus had had sent his disciples on a pretty demanding ministry trip. He gave them authority to heal the sick, to preach the kingdom of God arriving, and they just returned with joyous reports of how even the demons were subject to them. And Jesus had also just received news that John the Baptist had been executed by King Herod. John's faithful and courageous preaching had cost him his life. So maybe Jesus was feeling a bit of grief and uh, even a sense of loneliness at the time. So it was a good time to get away, to rest, to debrief with his disciples, to refresh. But as with many things in Jesus' life, it's not going to be that easy. We start at verse 1 of John chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Jesus was a polarizing figure. People either loved him or hated him. There don't seem to be too many who didn't have an opinion about Jesus or who ignored him. It shouldn't be surprising to us that the people were excited about him. They'd been watching the miracles that he was performing, even receiving some of the miracles that he was performing. And he was healing people wherever he went and driving out demons. Well, he was healing people in most of the places he went. Interestingly, the place where he has the most success reaching people with his message is the one place where he performed no miracles at all in the town of Sychar in Samaria back in John chapter 4. But Jesus was becoming increasingly popular with everyone except the Pharisees. They were becoming increasingly enraged by him, by his regular flouting of their Sabbath laws, by his blatant claims to be equal with God. And their fury led them to begin to seriously plot how to catch him out and put him to death. As I say, there don't seem to be very many people who were indifferent to Jesus. So after this, after those events of John chapter 5, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with the disciples. After his run-in with the Pharisees in the last chapter, Jesus sets out by boat for the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. This sea is an enormous lake that lies about 600 feet below sea level. It's familiar and bountiful fishing grounds for those of his disciples who are fishermen by trade, which is quite a large number of his disciples. The other Gospels give us further insight into this passage. Matthew tells us that he set out by boat to get away from the crowds. Jesus does this sort of thing from time to time. Even the Son of God needs a break. Even the Son of God needs to be refreshed. It's not that his divine nature would ever run out of energy, but his human nature is just like ours. He needed rest. He needed nourishment. He needed refreshment. He needed time to talk to and hear from his Father. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to get away from the hustle and bustle of daily life, how much more? Do we need it? It's one of the reasons that God instituted the Sabbath, to get us to stop with all our busyness and the pressure and the noise of life and return our focus to him, to be restored and to be refreshed by him. It's not so easy for Jesus to get away from all the crowds, though. Wherever he went, the crowds get wind of him and they come after him. It's why he spent so much time alone at night. It's the only time he could get respite from the crowds. We can maybe sympathise with that sometimes. We don't face, most of us don't face the pressure of being in the spotlight ourselves, but we're all aware to some degree of the pressures that celebrities face to keep their personal lives and their family time private. The tiniest personal piece of information about Harry and Megan or Kim and Kanye, or Trump, or Biden, is front-page news. They can go nowhere without having cameras shoved in their faces. It must be exhausting. 
But of course, the celebrities chose their lifestyle and they reaped the benefits of it. Wealth, power, influence, fame. And they could abandon it all and go back to an obscure lifestyle if they really wanted to. Not so Jesus. He had all the scrutiny with none of the benefits. And while he probably could have renounced his calling, thank God for our sakes that he didn't. He had a task that he willingly accepted in the eternal councils of heaven. This was to take on human flesh and come to rescue his people. He had a task to fulfill, which meant he couldn't escape the pressures until that task was finished, until he had done on our behalf what we could never do for ourselves. Anyway, when Jesus tried to get away, the crowds chased after him on foot around the top end of the lake. And not just crowds of dozens or even hundreds, it was crowds of thousands from all the towns in the regions. Mark's gospel tells us that they ran to get there before him, not even stopping to eat. When his boat reached the shore, there were already 5,000 men, plus women and children, coming for him. That means potentially 20,000 people rushing around the shoreline. That's nearly as many people as will be at the AFL Grand Final this year. Does that sound exhausting to you yet? But these people weren't especially interested in hearing what Jesus had to say, nor in obeying him. They wanted to see miracles, just like the crowd in Cana in John chapter 4. And remember, Jesus rebuked that crowd for chasing after signs and wonders. But here, his response to the crowd is different. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. He welcomed them, it said. He healed their sick, and he taught them about the kingdom of God. Such boundless patience and compassion, in spite of the demands on his time and attention, in spite of his physical exhaustion, Jesus never runs out of patience or compassion nor the energy to meet a need. And he still doesn't run out of patience today. Why should he even care that any of us live, let alone that any of us be healed or be fed? It's not like he needs any of us to feel, fill a hole in his heart. Why are we not destroyed the instant we sin against his holiness, even today? The Apostle Peter puts it like this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why his patience continues, but his patience won't last forever. For a day has been fixed when he will return and the process of judgment will begin. On that day, There'll be no more opportunity for repentance and healing and life. Peter also wrote, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you've not yet experienced true healing at Jesus' hands, the healing of your soul, now is the time to reach out to him for it. He never turns away those who come to him for healing. In verse 4, the gospel goes on, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew that he what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, John doesn't say anything about it, but the other Gospels tell us it's getting late in the afternoon. By this, by now, this crowd has been with Jesus all day, being healed of their diseases and listening to his teaching. They've been there all day without food. They must be starving by now. And the disciples are probably pretty hungry as well. I dare say they've probably had enough of the crowds too and feel like a break. Maybe they're mindful that Jesus came over here to get away from the crowds and to have a chance to rest and recharge. So much for that. So the disciples suggest that Jesus send the crowds away to get some food. The place is deserted and there are no shops nearby. And it's been a long day. Just send them away, Jesus. But instead, Jesus turns to Philip, who's a local, knows the area pretty well to ask where they could get food to feed this crowd. Now, you may have seen one of our major supermarket chains promoting themselves with TV ads featuring celebrities cooking up some of their favourite meals. Simple meals, but healthy, tasty and nutritious. And they tell you how to feed a family of four for under $5 a head. Now, Philip's no fool. He's done the math and he's worked out that 200 denario would barely, barely be enough to give each person a mouthful. 200 denario is about eight months' wages, around $40,000 or $50,000 in our money. So we could do a bit of math and estimate that there may have been, say, 20,000 people there to feed at $2 a head. You don't get much food for $2 a head. Not going to work, Jesus. There's no shops around. There's no food to be had anywhere. And even if there were, we don't have the $40,000 we need to buy enough food to even give them a mouthful. Game over, it would seem. But Jesus asked Philip this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. What does it mean that he asked this to test him? Philip had been travelling with Jesus for a while now. He had heard him preach and teach. He had witnessed untold miracles of healing and miracles of creation that Jesus had performed with a mere word. In fact, Philip had been present at the wedding in Cana when Jesus had turned the water into wine. And it tells us there in John chapter 2 that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, 
and his disciples believed in him. So Philip had seen something similar to this at the wedding, but obviously it doesn't twig with him. Did you really believe in me, Philip? Jesus might have asked him. Have you seen all that and still your thoughts immediately turn to how you can fix this problem and not to how I can fix it? O foolish one and slow of heart to believe, Jesus may have said. You might say that to us today too. Where do our thoughts immediately turn when we're confronted with a roadblock, a challenge, with opposition, with a lack of resources? Do we immediately begin to strategize how we can solve the problem? Or do we turn to him and ask for his strategies? his solution, his intervention. Now, Jesus already knew what he was going to do there by the lake. He merely asked Philip to test him. And he already knows the way through our problems. We only face these problems today to test us and so that we would learn where our first call for help should be. We should call on him first. Then see what he wants to do about our problem. Fortunately, there was someone there who was thinking outside the box, Andrew, Peter's brother. In verse 8, it tells us one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, Andrew doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence here either, but at least he's got something. Here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. It won't go far with this huge crowd, but maybe it can help. You can almost hear Andrew saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. But Jesus doesn't need much. He can work with our doubt, our uncertainty, even with our tiny faith. He is, after all, the one who created the whole universe out of nothing, with a mere word. Whether we have faith or no faith at all doesn't limit him. Whether we have the resources, the money, the equipment, the building the raw materials, none of that makes any difference to his ability to perform miracles and to achieve his goals. But have you noticed that Jesus often likes to involve other people in his work and his miracles? It's not that he needs us to do his work. Rather, he chooses to use us to do his work. If performing miracles and preaching the gospel were all Jesus wanted or needed to do, he could have done that on his own. He could have done it all around the world to every person on the planet simultaneously if that's what he wanted to do. He could have lived without ever aging and never dying for these last 2,000 years if he wanted. That surely would get people's attention. A 2,000-year-old miracle worker who doesn't look a day over 30. But for whatever reason, that's not the way he prefers to work. Without God, we cannot 
Without us, he will not. So said Augustine 1,600 years ago. And it holds true today. That's why Christians are charged with taking the gospel to other people groups. It's why we are told to feed the poor and care for the sick. It's why he asks us to pray for the very things he is already determined to do. It's why God can have a book of life with the names of everyone who will be saved written in it from before the world even began, insisting that salvation is entirely dependent on God, and yet insist at the same time that the salvation of any person is dependent on us sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. That's no contradiction to God. Theologians would tell us that God has not only ordained the ends, but he has ordained the means to those ends. That is to say, God has not only already planned out and determined what will happen, but he has already decided how that will come about. And almost invariably, it comes about by our involvement in his work. And in our text today, we see that it comes about by the involvement of the disciples and in, in an impoverished young boy. In verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the, the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus took this minuscule offering from the young boy and looked up to heaven and gave thanks. With such a tiny amount and such a large crowd, we would probably be tempted to look to heaven and say thanks for nothing, but not Jesus. He knows exactly what he's going to do with these scraps. And he knows who the source of abundant supply really is. The common form of thanksgiving in those days was to pray, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So Jesus gives thanks and begins to break the bread into pieces, bringing forth bread from the earth. And he gives it to the disciples to share around. And the people ate as much as they wanted. They had their fill. No one went home hungry that day. In fact, there was so much food that there were leftovers and not just crumbs of leftovers. So Jesus tells them to collect the leftovers and they gather up enough to fill 12 large baskets. Think about that. The boys' lunch would probably fit in a Ziploc bag but they collected enough leftovers to fill 12 backpacks. That's a miracle of abundant supply. As always, there are some who refuse to believe that that's what really happened. There are some who suggest that wasn't really a miracle. These people would claim that everyone had brought their lunch along there, but it was only the boy who was willing to share his lunch. But when the crowd saw the generosity of that poor boy, they were all convicted about their selfishness and inspired by his example to share their lunch also. So in the end, there was more than enough to go around. 
Now, if that's how it really happened, then maybe there is no miracle of creation of food out of thin air. Maybe there is a miracle, though, in that 20,000 people witnessed a lovely act of generosity by a poor young boy and conclude from that that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is the prophet, that Jesus is the king who would finally overthrow the Romans and set them free. Does that seem to you a logical conclusion and response to the generosity of a small boy? Is that what you would conclude if you were there? No, I think it's nonsense too. Sadly, this isn't the only miracle that some people try to explain away. The very next passage about Jesus walking on the water receives a similar treatment from some. But we'll get to that next week. Anyway, moving on from this miracle of abundant supply, take notice of what Jesus does next. He tells them to collect the leftovers so they won't be wasted. Interesting thought. Why should Jesus, of all people, care about waste? He can create more out of nothing, can't he? That's what he's just done. Why should it matter? And yet he does seem to care about waste. Could there be a lesson for us in this about our wastefulness? It's something I'll leave for you to ponder. But when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That passing comment that John made back in verse 4 about the Passover being at hand begins to make some sense now. It wasn't just put in there to fill up space, but rather to set the scene for what comes next. And it's also to set the scene for, Je- for the conversation that Jesus will have the crowds the following day. And we'll come back to that conversation in more detail in a few weeks. But here, it's important because it tells us about why they wanted to make him king. The prevailing mood around Passover time was one of, of frustration at being subject to a foreign power, just like the bad old days in Egypt and a longing for the promised prophet and Messiah to come and set them free. Nationalistic fervour was at its peak around Passover time. It's part of the reason why the Jews followed so many self-proclaimed messiahs, only to see their hopes brutally dashed and crushed by the Romans time and time again. But this one, this Jesus... He even has power over demons. If he, he can heal the sick and he can create food for anyone on demand, if anyone has the power to overthrow the Romans, surely it must be this man. Just think, the perfect welfare state. No more sickness. No more hunger. No more subjection to foreign powers. Let's make him king now and we'll soon be set free. But Jesus was having none of it. My hour has not yet come, he would have told them if they would only listen. His hour is coming. His hour is coming when he will be installed as king. But that hour is not yet. 
There's still much more to do. The timing is not yet right. And on top of that, Jesus, though he would one day be king, is not the sort of king they were looking for. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted a powerful king. They wanted a king who would overthrow all the occupying forces that would ever threaten them. Jesus is not that sort of king. Jesus rules over occupying forces of a different kind, of a spiritual kind. In time, he would tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. A time is coming when Jesus will be ruler over this world in its entirety. In a sense, he already is. He is sovereign over it even as we speak. But his plan is not yet entirely worked out. We heard Mike preach from Hebrews 2 not so long ago. And speaking of Jesus Christ, it tells us there, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. One day we will see everything in subjection to him. And when that time comes, I hope and pray that you'll find yourself on the right side, in the right army, so to speak. In the meantime, there's a much greater threat than Roman occupation, a much greater threat than Russian hacking or worldwide pandemics or political division. There's a much greater threat than Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Daniel Andrews. In fact, not even the possibility of governments outlawing Christianity entirely is our greatest threat. Rather, the occupying force that keeps us in subjection is sin and our greatest enemy is death. And that's precisely what Jesus came to conquer. Victory over these enemies can never be achieved by willpower, nor by political influence, nor by military might. As much control as earthly rulers might imagine they have, they can never defeat these enemies. You can't legislate morality. You can't impose the new birth on citizens. The most dangerous enemies we face are not earthly enemies. They are spiritual enemies. That's why the Bible tells us the weapons of our warfare are not of this world, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We need a king who can break the bonds of sin and death. And we have one in Jesus Christ. I was reminded as I prepared this message of a time when we as a family had almost nothing. We had just moved to Melbourne to start a new job. We were living in a caravan inside a warehouse. 
without any bathroom or any kitchen facilities. We were flat broke. We didn't know anyone in Melbourne and we were alone and lonely. A spur of the moment decision one Sunday evening led us to visit a small church. Before the meeting was finished that evening, we had a place to live lined up and a new church family to care for us. There's one young couple who would invite us around regularly for a meal and a shower. Another young newlywed couple provided groceries for us when the pantry and the wallet was empty. Now, these people didn't have very much to offer either. But the little they had had a profound impact on us. In fact, it was a significant part of the survival of my Christian faith during those difficult times. I thank God for his care and his provision for us through the meagre resources of these people. And I'm humbled to this day that he would use virtual strangers to generously meet our needs. I've never forgotten that, how God provided for us through other people. And the offering of the five loaves and the two small fish by this young boy has not been forgotten either. It's been preserved for 20 centuries now. Remember I quoted Augustine earlier, without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. It's not that God is hamstrung, unable to act if we don't help him out. Rather, he chooses to use us to meet the needs of others. And in blessing others, we usually find ourselves blessed as well. In fact, I think I could go so far as to say that in blessing others with our poultry offering, we receive 12 basketfuls of leftovers in return. It's the strange economics of God. The more you give away, the more you get back in return. Not always in material wealth, but always in eternal wealth. So today you may feel like you don't have much to offer Jesus. Let's face it, we're all selfish. We're all distracted. We're damaged goods. We may be poor, uneducated, isolated, powerless, with little of value to offer him. How far will my five loaves and two fish go in the face of such need? What is five loaves? It is enough for Jesus. Maybe you feel like you have little more than your prayers to offer him. He can work miracles even with that small offering. He doesn't need much. He's the God of abundance. He's the one who can create the universe without any raw materials to work with. The one who can create the sun, the moon and the stars with just a word. He can take the few scraps we may have to offer and feed the whole world. Do you wish you had more that you could give him? More wealth, more power, more influence? And worry about it no longer. He doesn't need more of your stuff. He wants more of you. In fact, you may be so isolated that you only have one person to talk to 
one person who will listen to you. In this day of the internet, we all have at least one person to talk to. But that's enough for Jesus to work with. A kind word, an encouragement in times of distress, an uplifting, an uplifting Facebook post. That may be all you can bring. And that's all Jesus needs to work a miracle for that person. Maybe you're in need of that miracle of supply yourself or of healing. You can't see where it will come from. None of your friends are wealthy enough. None of them have miracle cures. Take it to him in prayer. Lord, I have nothing to give you but my brokenness. But I offer my brokenness, my emptiness to you. Would you please provide for me like you provided for that crowd all those years ago? Your circumstances don't take Jesus by surprise. Maybe the reason things look so hopeless is because he's testing you like he tested Philip. Where can I turn for help when there is no way out of the situation? Where indeed? You can turn to him. For he already knows what he intends to do with your problem. He can take the most hopeless situation and turn it around for good. It's one of the ways he shows his glory. It's one of the ways he shows his care, his abundance. His resources are infinite. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the God of abundance. You are the God who has compassion and sees that we are like sheep without shepherds with such need, such propensity to go astray. And Lord, you pour out your abundance on us. You pour out on us so frequently through other people in ways that we don't even recognise as being from your hand, but you pour out goodness and blessings on us. Lord, I pray that we will recognise your hand in every good thing we have and that we will recognise your plan in every challenge we face, your purpose to test us and refine us like gold in the fire, to teach us to turn to you with our lack and with our abundance to see how you would choose to use it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that, that you will use us as you use that little boy with whatever meagre offerings we might have 
to achieve your purposes in the world, to meet the needs of those who are in lack, of those who haven't yet heard of you, of those who are hurting, who are sick. Help us, Lord, to offer up the little we have, to see you multiply it infinitely, Lord, to meet needs. Lord, we put ourselves in your care and pray that you will teach us to trust you and turn to you with everything, with every challenge, with every care. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.